Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Excuse me. Um, my, my guest on today's podcast is my new friend, Brooke Booth. Welcome to the podcast, Brooke. Thank you. Um, this is a podcast to talk about mixed faith marriages. If you're not familiar with that term, it's where um, two people generally are in the same faith, LDS, active, temple marriage. And then over time, one in the marriage moves to a different space and is no longer active in the church. Um, and there's probably a range of people in that space, not active, but it, they're in a different space they were when they got married and where the other spouse is. And that can be difficult. And um, a lot of those marriages still want to work. And there's a, sometimes life coaches and people that have been in, are in this space that I'm glad to have on the podcast. And that's what Brooke is. She's a life coach and she's going to share um, the work that she's doing. So if you're in a mixed faith marriage and seems to be there's more of those or working to help somebody in a mixed faith marriage, maybe you're a local leader, a family member, our prayers, this podcast will be helpful for you. Um, just tell you a little bit about Brooke. She is the partner in a marriage that is no longer active in the church. And so we've had some where the active member, the active temple, not church going, um, I'm stumbling on my words, but everybody knows what I'm trying to stay, say um, a bit on the podcast, but I thought it'd be good for Brooke to be on the podcast. So she's coming this from a husband who's active, a youngest child who's active, and she is not active. Um, but from what I can sense, their marriage is a healthy marriage and they're honoring each other's past. Brooke is not asking any of you listeners that are active LDS to leave or any of you that are in a mixed faith marriage, if you're the believing one to leave, um, that's not the work she's doing. Um, she is trying to use principles um, to keep marriages together. And I call it unity and diversity, and that's possible. And I've seen some really healthy marriages. Um, it doesn't happen on day one. Um, work needs to be done. Uh, Brooke has kind of grown up all over the place. She's joining us right now from Michigan, um, um, near Detroit. I forgot the name of the suburb. Bloomington Hills or Bloom? Bloomfield Hills. Bloom? Yeah, what you said. <laughs> um, uh, she's in her mid-40s. Uh, she has four kids. She's a BYU graduate in anthropology with a minor, I think, in Spanish. Served a mission in the Philippines. Um, went to law school, has been a practicing attorney. Um, so just a wonderful um, human that's um, done much good in our world and continues to do that um, as a life coach. In the show notes, I'm going to get Brooke talking in a second, um, but in the show notes, we'll, list, we'll link to her podcast, her website, which is Brooke Booth Coaching, and that's Brooke with an E. Um, we'll link to, um, we'll put her email in the show notes. So if you want to email Brooke, you can email her. We'll also put a couple of faith groups for couples in mixed faith marriages that Brooke is involved with that might be helpful for you to find community of other um, couples that are walking this road. Um, there's some that have been in this space for a long time. We're often providing kind of mentorship and this is how it can work and you're in that space. So is that okay for an introduction, Brooke? That sounds perfect. So with that, since I've stumbled over some of my words, I'm going to um, let Brooke talk. And we just hope this podcast is helpful. I just, I am going to say one more thing. I think sometimes 
Um, you know, I think one of the hardest challenges for LDS people is when someone they love leaves the church. And in my latest book called Building the Good Ship Zion, I wrote a chapter on how should we treat people that leave the church. And it's not an invitation to leave the church, but I think God wants us to learn how to reduce divisiveness, even between those that stay and leave. And that is hard, uh, but it's possible. And so that's one of the hopes of having Brooke on the podcast is that what she shares will help us do that. So now I'm going to get Brooke talking. Okay, I'm going to share my story just to give context to my own mixed faith marriage. And then I'll spend most of the time talking about my mixed faith marriage and what I call the phases of a mixed faith marriage. Um, I think many people relate, especially um, those of us in a Mormon mixed faith marriage. So I had a pretty typical childhood. I was raised by a stay-at-home mom and and a dad who worked and we went to church every Sunday. We had family home evening every week. Um, our life was definitely centered around church. We, I was one of those kids, like just to understand myself, like when my dad taught family home evening lessons out of Mormon doctrine, those were my favorite lessons. Like I really liked to learn about the doctrine and the church and in, in like more than just that we belonged and that this was our community. Like I wanted to know about it and I wanted to really understand it. So that was really enjoyable to me as a kid. Um, but my parents both taught early morning seminary for years and years and years. I think combined, they have like 30 years of experience wow. teaching early morning seminary. So this is the, like the waters I swam in as a child. These were the kinds of conversations we had. So very active, very involved. You know, I have a jewelry box somewhere in my house full of all of the jewelry young women earn over the course of their span in young women's. Um, I did it all and I loved it all. And it was, it was formative and it was enjoyable. And I, I have nothing but very fond memories of that. When I graduated from high school, I went to BYU Provo and I had a great education there. I was able to do study abroad. I really loved my experience at BYU. Um, and then I followed up with that by serving a mission. Like immediately, like I graduated and went on my mission within just a few weeks. Like it was like, graduated from BYU, got my wisdom teeth that went on a mission, like all <laughs> like a really short period of time. I remember <laughs> my daughter just got her wisdom teeth out. So it brought all of these <laughs> memories back up for me. So did you go completely under on your wisdom teeth or one of the... Can you I remember? I, I didn't, but I remember when I went into the MTC, I was still ill. <laughs> you were like still I, like swollen. I was still actively recovering <laughs> from the from the procedure. That I do remember. <laughs> I, I like had like caught an infection or something. It, it wasn't it wasn't super well when I went into the MTC, but I had a very understanding companion. Anyway, I served in the Philippines in the Olongapo Philippines Mission, which is near Subic Bay. So a lot of people know Subic Bay from just like U.S. World War II history. So that's the part of the Philippines I served in. So Lake Bataan was part of my mission. Um, I had a, I was one of those kids who loved mission farewells and returns, and I would listen to them just eagerly anticipating the day I could serve my own mission. So it was a really it was something I had planned and looked forward to my whole childhood. And it was really exciting to go to the, the Philippines and, and have that experience. Um, and I, I like to cram things together because 
I got home from my mission. And then two weeks later, I started law school. There was no, no, no breaks, just timing. It was wow. just timing. So I started law school um, right after my mission. The reason I bring this up is because this is when I met my husband. So this is, this is where that comes into play. I had been accepted at BYU law school, but I was ready to be home. My parents were living in Michigan at the time and I had been four years at BYU and then, you know, sometime in the 18 months in the Philippines and I was ready to be home. So I said, no, thank you to BYU. And I went to Wayne State for law school. And so I was involved very active in the singles ward here, which is, believe it or not, the same building my husband still attends. Same building. We're just... It's quite close to our house, actually. Um, if anybody's familiar with Detroit, it's like the stake center on Woodward, where the temple's also right there. So that's where we met in the singles ward. So I was a full-time law school student. He was working at General Motors, which he still does. He's a lifelong I wonder, guy. I wondered so, if that's where your family was tied to, just where you live, because I'm generally aware there's a lot of, I think... Big three auto companies. I don't know if it's still the big three that are have a lot of presence there. There is a big presence in the big three. My family actually lived up north. I lived in Traverse ah. City. That's where I graduated from college. So even though I was in Detroit, which is four hours from where it felt really close to home after being thousands of miles away. So they weren't part of the automotive industry. My dad was a chiropractor, but my husband's definitely part of the automotive <laughs> industry. So we're very familiar. We, I could talk cars if you wanted to talk cars. <laughs> anyway, so we met in the singles ward. He was, it's like the classic story. He was the elder scrum president. I was the Sunday school teacher, just got back from my mission. Um, we were engaged a year later and then we got married pretty shortly after that. We were engaged in like September and married, I like November. We got married over Thanksgiving. I'm not really sure why now that I think about it. It was right before finals, but it worked. We got married. So I got married in November of 2002. I finished law school in May of 2004. And at the time I was six months pregnant with our oldest. And I took the bar exam when I was, no, I took the bar exam when I was six months pregnant. So dates are a little off, but I was six months pregnant when I took the bar exam. I I remember this and I tell the story because, um, that was unusual. <laughs> I was very sure I was the only pregnant woman in that room. But I did really well on the exam. In Michigan, they have, back in the day, they've changed it since. But, um, you know, this was like 20 years ago. And um, they have this thing called multi-state. And if you take the multiple case, multiple choice and you get a certain amount right, you don't. they don't even test the essay. So I did that. It's called multi-stating. It just means I prepared really well and I'm smart. That's what I like to make it mean anyway. But that was, it was a big deal for me to be able to do that. Um, I was sworn in as an attorney when I was two weeks overdue because my kid came so late. So that I felt a little bit like a spectacle that day in front of all the judges. I wasn't even going to do it because the plan was that I was going to be a stay-at-home mom. But since she was overdue and it was time to do it, we went and I got sworn in to, you know, you get sworn in to work in the courts so you can show up and practice law. Two weeks um, overdue. That's very overdue. That's about as yeah. long as I've ever heard. Um, I got a lot of comments that day. <laughs> I got a lot of comments. 
I, at the time I didn't think it was going to be necessary. My husband's like, yeah, let's do it. I was grateful that he pushed me to do that because I did end up going back to work later. And I was really glad that I had taken care of that little technicality, I guess. But that's, I just share it because it's such a clear memory in my head. (laughs) So then I started, you know, being a mom. So I was a stay at home mom for 11 years four kids at the time. And the reason I bring that up is because for the first six of those 11 years, the first six, my husband was Bishop. So for six of when I was basically having, we had three of the kids. I think actually my oldest was like six months old when he was called. And then I had two more girls during those six years that he served as Bishop. And, and I'll talk more about that, but I was very busy. I was, you know, primary presidency, young women presidency, cycling through all of that. I taught early morning seminary myself for quite a few years. I ended up being the institute teacher in our stake doing the pathways program. Loved it. This was some of my favorite callings that I had was doing all of that, that teaching with the youth. We spent basically the first 15 years of our marriage serving, serving, serving our hearts out, really being that quintessential LDS family that you think of. I mean, that was us in many regards. And I was very dedicated and committed and interested in that lifestyle. I did not see this coming. So at the 15-year mark is when I had my faith transition. And... It had been brewing for some time. I just wasn't aware it had been brewing for some time. Um, I was I was not one of those nuanced believers. I I was like I, like it was not me. The cafeteria approach, like that was not me. I was like, you're gonna do it. You're gonna do it right. That was definitely like I said. I liked the Mormon doctrine lessons that my dad taught just fine. And so I wasn't. I didn't really see it happening because it was so outside of the expectations I have for myself in my life. But it brewed in two main ways. And I won't dwell on this because I really do want to talk about the mixed faith marriage, but it's part of the story. And so, so like my clients want to know my story all the time. So I'm like, I'll tell my story a little bit here. So it brewed in two main ways. And again, I wasn't really aware of it at the time. This is mostly retrospect, but one was I was teaching a lot of lessons. Um, like some weeks I would be teaching seven, eight lessons a week, you know, five in, in, in seminary. And then I would teach something on Sunday and family home meeting lessons. Like it was a lot of lessons I was preparing. And so I was always reading and studying church material and it was church material. I was, I wasn't reading anything outside of church material. Even to this day, I don't really dabble in a lot of other stuff. Um, and I noticed some like inconsistencies and some funny stuff, but I would just ignore it and not dwell on it. You know, I had another lesson to prepare or something else to do. That was one thing that just started to just, I couldn't ignore it. But the second is way more significant. And that is, I, and I struggled finding the words for this. So this may not be the most elegant way of saying it, but I struggled experiencing being a woman in a patriarchal culture. And I started to find that very painful personally to experience. And I'll, I'll give you some examples because I think examples make it easier to, for people to understand what I'm even trying to communicate. So I'll give you an example from home and I'll give you an example from church because I felt it in both areas. 
So in the home, it was challenging for me to be married to a, what I call a very busy church man. He's always been in positions of leadership. He's I'm an amazing person. I mean, there's a reason he's in these positions. He's truly an amazing person. And so he's always been very busy um, in church and in his career. And he's successful on all fronts. He's Mr. Amazing. I have nothing bad to say about my husband. Um, But it wasn't uncommon in those early years where, you know, I'd have a couple of toddlers at home. He'd come home. Maybe he'd be there five minutes, 15 minutes max off to the next church meeting. And, you know, he'd grab some food and go, youth activities, training meetings, member visits. You, you're familiar, whatever it happened to be for that night. And this would happen in, on a minimum twice a week, but you know, sometimes four times on a weeknight. Then there'd be maybe an activity at church on Friday night or youth dance on Saturday or and Sundays were always course busy and packed with things drawing him away. And I'm a very capable person. Like I can, I can get stuff done. I can like do things. I'm a very capable person. And most people are like, you know, just kind of got our stuff together. And I really do in large part, but this time of my life was not easy for me. Well, I did have my stuff together and this is really when the cracks started to form. In large part, our family was centered around my husband. Like, and of course, like that's what I had been modeled. That's like what I saw growing up. I never questioned it, but it was centered around his career, his callings, his schedule that always took precedence. And that wasn't easy for me to be the one who was taking care of the kids in the house without much help from him. I felt overwhelmed. I felt lonely. Um, I felt like my labor as a caregiver, a house cleaner was unfulfilling in many regards. And I found that the efforts, my efforts with you know everything from raising kids and parenting and budgeting and housework and managing, you know, the glue that kind of held everything together was, um, not highly valued and it wasn't and if I did like want something to change I didn't feel like it was important enough for things to change so it really struggled um with being that young one wife without a lot of support and that's where I would say looking back now where I really start to see like that first initial crack form for me in church, I struggled with seeing how women were, um, I don't want to say treated, because I think really women are treated poorly, but like the views and the ideas, and, and I'll give you two examples, like, like sort of bookends, like an early one and a late one, just to, and knowing there's a lot more there, but just for the sake of time, and I really do want to talk about the mixed faith marriage stuff. When I was... I had that baby right before he got called as bishop. He was high council. As like I said, he's Mr. Amazing. And we were like newlyweds, right? And so we had one car. Oops. We had one car. And um, it, it requires traveling. So he's traveling all over the metro Detroit area. And in all honesty, when the, the state president had us both in his office, I was like, wait, how am I going to get to church if he's going to be needing the car? to do this calling. And 
the stake president counseled that like my husband would be using the car and that I would need to figure that out for myself. And at the time I was like, oh, of course, silly of me to even ask. Like, of course. And then I did, and I did figure it out. You know, I had, we, we had this, anyway, we had some friends that came and would help facilitate driving me and this baby to church each Sunday. But when I look back at it now, I'm fascinated by this because I'm here, here I am again, and we're centering Daniel and his experience. Daniel's my husband's name. We're centering his calling. We're centering his convenience. Um, and the fascinating thing for me here about this part of the story, Richard, is we had the financial ability to buy a second car. Interesting. But we didn't consider it. Like, I didn't think of asking for that. My husband certainly didn't volunteer that at the time, but we completely had the financial. Like, it wasn't like we were, like, poor students. And this was something we just, like, it just wasn't something we considered. Because my convenience, like, wasn't something that needed to be addressed. So it's just, I just started to, like, have these experiences um, but again, at the time, I was like, oh, of course, of course, of course. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about this baby. You take the call. You take the car, Daniel. The, the other bookend I'll just offer is, um, so we were talking like 15 years later, I was teaching institute, loving this calling. Like this calling was so delightful and so enjoyable for me. Love teaching these YSA people, um, you know, in the institute, in the stake center every week. And I was, I got a little bit of pushback on some concerns about that I was focusing on the young women. There were the majority of the class were like 20 something women were just a handful of young men attending. And I got some pushback. They asked if I could please focus the lessons on the pre-missionary aged young men. And I expressed like that that wasn't, that didn't make sense to me. Like I, I, I expressed that that wasn't what I agreed with that I felt like the focus should be on the young women in the class. And I was released. Wow. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I may have been a little emotional talking about it. And, and I, I don't judge, like I, I'm sure they had their reasons. And I know like that's a lot of the focus of the church is those, the, that age of young men, but it was challenging for me at the time. So, but that's not even like, I'm still active at this time. I'm not questioning anything. I'm still like full in. And it was maybe a year or two after that, that I cracked open a little bit more. And my faith transition became a full-blown thing. Um, and that's why I want to talk about like the mixed faith marriage, because the faith transition was intense for me. And there was a lot of things I needed to work through and unpack. Like I said, I was not expecting it. Not like it was very unsettling for me. Um, but it really hit our marriage like a tsunami. Like it really did. It was um, very challenging to find ourselves in a mixed faith marriage. I remember having this initial conversation with my husband. I mean, like there was some stirrings, but like, you know, doubt your doubts and things like this. This isn't stuff I was bringing up to him on a regular basis. And so when I realized that this was like a genie I couldn't put back in the bottle and I had this initial discussion with him, I mean, he was gutted. 
And rightly so. I, if the roles were reversed, I think it would have been 10 times worse, to be honest. So he was really, he really struggled with that. Um, and I think one reason that we were both caught off guard and really struggled is because I didn't follow any of the patterns. This is what you were talking about before our call. I didn't follow any of the patterns we'd been taught about in church. Like I had no desire to sin. I, I don't drink coffee to this day. I think the stuff tastes terrible. <laughs> I don't drink alcohol to this day. I mean, we're talking, it's been like six years. I don't, I, I very much still look like who I looked like then. Um, still, I don't like R-rated movies. I, I have rules, no violence, no fight scenes, no boxing scenes. I don't like it. Not me. It's not me. I, I, I just don't like stuff like that. So it wasn't like, that wasn't my reason, but that's a reason that sometimes we're presented with. And also at the time, I had literally never missed a day of my scripture study and prayer. I was that kid at 13 who's like, I'm committing, I'm doing this. And I did. I did. I was one of those people who went consistently to the temple. My ministering, I was visiting teaching for many years. I was like the 100% girl because this was important to me. Right. So needless to say, it didn't see it coming. Um, so it, you know, it was challenging. It was challenging. So here we were 15 years into our marriage. He's still all in. I'm taking a break. That's what we called it at first. Our kids were, the oldest was 13 and our youngest was three. So they were, you know, at these ages where it really matters. I was at this time working as a litigator. I had gone back to work in a few years before this. I had a great job. It was complex business litigation, you know, fun, big numbers, fun people, you know, talking, going fun, fun, fun stuff. I highly recommend it. So our life was big and full. Like we had a lot going on. These four kids, these two careers, house, church, all of this stuff. And then we add a mixed faith marriage into the mix. So then, of course, this is just how Brooke rolls, is then I decide I should probably become certified as a life coach, right? And you know why I did it? Because I needed to figure out my marriage. It's honest. I had completely selfish reasons. Like, people go into this for altruistic reasons, not me. My reasons <laughs> were completely selfish. I needed to figure out my mixed faith marriage. I needed to figure out this relationship stuff. I needed to figure out like what was going on with me so that this marriage could like, continue. So that's why I got into like the life coaching and my business just grew and grew and grew and grew until I couldn't practice law and have my business coincide. It was just too much. I had one year there that was a little too busy. And so I had to let the lie decided to let the law go to continue with, with helping people in a mixed faith marriage. And so now I spend literally all day talking about relationships, talking about relationship stuff and mixed faith marriage and all of that. And so what I want to talk about now is like what I consider to be the phases of a mixed faith marriage. Now, these are specific for me because I'm sharing my story, but I think many people relate. And I teach that there are different phases to a mixed faith marriage and not everybody's going to go through every single phase. 
Not everybody's going to go through it in the same order I went through. Not everybody's going to go, like, sometimes you repeat phases. Sometimes you skip phases. Like, it's it's very similar to the grief cycle in this regards. And, and you'll see I sort of incorporate some grief cycle stuff there. But it's not linear. You can go back and repeat phases. It's messy. This is all part of being a human in a relationship. So we have to start really embracing the inherent dynamics, messiness volatility. It's, 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 um, we need to really have some like flexibility when dealing with our own humanity and our own marriages. So I'll walk through the phases and I'll share my own experience as I walk through them. And I'll give you some, some ideas I have that I've learned like uh, while working with couples in this and also from my own lived experience. Um, and these are my own titles. So this these are not technical titles. <laughs> the first one is ignore it and hope it goes away phase. That's the first phase. If you were like maybe a psychologist or something, you might call this denial. <clears throat> but I call it the ignore it and hope it goes away phase. So basically what denial is, is like this can't be happening. This is a phase. They'll get over it. I don't need to do anything. It'll pass. And I've definitely seen this with quite a few of my clients. You know, somebody will just bury their hand in the sand and just expect that their spouse will just work through this little aberration and then come back and everything will be as it once was. That's what ignore it and hope it goes away looks like. So if you notice in my story, I did this early on in my own faith transition. I had no idea I was in a faith transition in part because this was probably what I was experiencing was some form of denial that you know, this system that had held me so beautifully for so long wasn't able to hold me anymore. Like there's definitely denial around that. Um, denial over like the impacts that this may have. Like it's just easier not to look at that. So I had my own experience with that. I would argue that the believing spouse also experiences this. Um, it usually comes at a different time. Like I would say that the husband and wife or however the relationship works, like this is not something you go through together. You're going to be going through these phases at your own paces. And so you may be in denial and he may be in a very different phase altogether. Like I said, part of this is just being okay that this is not, this is a little messy. This is a little, there's a lot going on here and just being okay with that. So he experienced his denial. And I don't want to tell my husband's story too much here because it's his to tell. So I'll only just briefly reference, but I do, I'll, I'll probably talk more about the believing Mormon more through the lens of my clients, just to like give him his, I don't want to tell the story for him because I, I probably wouldn't do it justice. But I see a lot of like my post, the, the believing Mormon clients, um, they tend to have that denial phase shortly after their spouse tells them about their faith transition. And it's again, well, this is, this isn't going to last forever. They'll come back. They're just going through a phase, things like this. One thing I want to say about ignore it and hope it goes away. This denial phase is, it's not a bad thing. Sometimes when we talk about denial, we think like, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't be in denial. And I like to say, it's not a bad thing. It's a coping thing. It's a normal thing. It's okay to be in denial. That's like, it's, there's a reason it's part of the grief cycle. There's a reason it's part of this because there's times when we can't deal with everything 
that's in front of us. And denial helps us to cope so we can deal with what we can deal with. Now, this is one of those things that moderation and all things, right? You don't want to be in denial for like 20 years. That's, we don't need that. But there is a time and a season where denial is perfectly reasonable, healthy response. Okay, the other, the next phase that we went through is what I call walking on eggshells. So again, if you were looking at this through the grief cycle or something, this is probably what people would call the anger phase. This feels like when things are very tenuous, very on edge, very precarious, eggshells. And again, I would say both partners definitely have an angry phase. It's usually much more obvious, the one who's had the faith transition or the faith crisis, whatever language you want to use. It's usually much more obvious when they're in the angry phase. They're angry at the church. So like me, I'm angry at the church. I'm angry at my past choices. I'm angry at how women are viewed. I'm angry that my spouse can't understand my choices and can't understand the experience I'm having. There's a lot of things to be angry about. The angry phase can be very embarrassing because we're not, we're not always acting our best. You know, this is where like you're a little petty or you're, you're not, you're, we shame ourselves sometimes for the behavior we demonstrate in the anger phase because sometimes we aren't showing up as our best selves. So for me, I, I'm a, I have a strong personality. Like I'm no shrinking violet as my old law firm <laughs> partner used to say. I'm not a shrinking violet. So I would be a little more snarky, sarcastic. Then is even my normal, because that's sort of a normal thing for me, but it would be more than that. And then I would be really ashamed of my behavior in that, in that phase. And that can compound it. Like, like anger, again, is a perfectly normal human emotion. It's a perfectly normal human response. And, and I think that there's, there needs to be a lot more space for people and their anger. And now I'm not saying that we need to be acting out and that that's okay and lashing out and hurting people. That's not okay. But just the experience of anger in and of itself is okay. The believing spouse is also goes through an angry phase. And again, theirs can look quite different and it comes at a different time often, but sometimes they're angry that their kids won't have the upbringing that they hoped with two believing parents. Sometimes they're angry, like, this is not what I signed up for. They're angry about the loss of their own same fake marriage or eternal family, however they want, you know, however they, they talk about that, however they look at that. I know definitely for the post-Mormon, there's a lot of anger directed at the church. That's something I talk to with my clients a lot about. The thing I'll say about the angry phase is, how you respond to your spouse's anger, like when they're experiencing their anger phase, really speaks volumes about your relationship. It speaks volumes about the health and the resilience of that relationship. And something I learned about my own relationship at this time was that it needed some work. We did not res respond well to each other's anger. This was something that, like, going into this, we would have said we had this great relationship. You know, we were like the bishop and his wife going to the marriage classes, being the star students. We were blind 
to some of our relationship issues because we were so good at fulfilling our roles that we weren't so good at doing some of the relationship stuff. Like I could turn out lessons, but was I good at communicating my emotions? No. Interesting. I was really good at teaching my kids the reasons why they should get baptized. Was I really good at um, working through my own shame? No. Was I good at holding space for my husband's emotions? No. So the anger phase, I think, really teaches you a lot about the health of your marriage and your relationship skills. And we learned that we had some work to do. I remember going to a restaurant and my husband was, this is pretty early on. My husband's like, okay, I'm ready, Brooke. I'm ready to hear about your face transition and why you decided to step away. I, I hadn't shared with him a lot because I wanted to respect his beliefs. I didn't want to inundate him with things he didn't want to hear. I'm not the type of person who was sending him podcasts and books to read and talks. So that's, that's not who I am. I'm like, when you're ready and you want to hear, I'll share. So he's like, okay, I'm ready. Let's share. Okay. Neither of us were ready. We were still in the anger phase that we went to this restaurant. I still think about the waiter, poor man. I went to this restaurant and, um, it's like, let's talk. And I, so I start to tell him and, um, yeah, we didn't stay for dessert. It wasn't pretty. We were, it was very tense. We both retreated into what I call like the demilitarized zone at this point, <laughs> like North Korean, South Korea, demilitarized zone where we had, we just stopped talking about church period. Unless it was like a logistic thing or a person thing, we just stopped talking about church. And I think in large part, because we didn't handle the anger phase well, and we didn't handle each other being angry. Um, looking back now with like the training and the experience I have, I would have done so many things differently that, you know, you can only do what you can at the time. The next phase I want to talk about is what I call the really scary phase. So again, if you're looking at the grief cycle, it's like sadness or depression. And so you've experienced feelings like lonely, sad, loss. Um, you start to realize that your marriage is never going to be the same, that maybe you have different values, you have different goals. You know, maybe you were both going to, like, we were going to go back to the Philippines and be senior missionaries. Well, that's not going to happen now. I think he was actually kind of relieved about that, but <laughs> for some couples, that's like, it's like a real loss. Like, that's never going to happen now. Like, we're never going to be, you know, working in the temple together. We're never going to be going on the series of missions like we had talked about. Like we were never going to go to Nauvoo and teach pottery and make candles. Like we were never going to be that couple. And so it can be really scary. And I think in, like, a lot of times people need to be reminded, I needed to be reminded that it's okay to be sad. And it's okay to be sad that your relationship is changing. And it's important to acknowledge that and to like work through that. I think this phase is where you, it can be so helpful to have some emotional processing tools to move through this phase. You know, for me, I realized I couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. I think I said that earlier. And I realized I didn't want to. So I had to mourn the loss of my same faith relationship. I had to loss mourn the loss of my companionship in my marriage the way it was before, because it wasn't ever going to be the same. 
that's a lot of emotional work to do. You know, my husband and believing members, they need to mourn the loss of their, maybe their temple marriage if they see that that's over. And I, I know that different people see the doctor in different ways. The loss of an eternal family, the loss of raising their children in the church. Like there's things to mourn. There's things to really mourn and work through. It's a lot of work I do with my clients in that phase is like processing the emotions. There's a lot of work I had to do with myself is processing those emotions. Being okay that those are emotions that don't need to be resisted. Okay, the next phase. Why can't you just change phase? Now, this one I see most clients go through. We spent a fair amount of time here. Like, why can't you just change? Um, so this might be like bargaining. You try to get them to come join you on your side of the street. Come join me in my faith transition or come join me back on the pew. They come be over here with me. I really, really wanted my spouse to validate me and my choices. I wanted him to understand why I was doing what I was doing and why I was believing what I was believing and thinking what I was thinking. I wanted him to validate. And I see this with so many clients too, is sometimes as humans, adults, we're a little bit insecure, maybe a lot. And we want our spouse to like join us on that journey to help validate our decisions because it's scary what we're doing. Whether you're the one staying or going, it's scary to do it alone. And we, it's really nice when our spouse can be there and be like, and provide that external validation for us. Um, like I wanted him to understand. I wanted him to say like, dang, you're right. This makes perfect sense. Let me, let me come and join you over here. But I'll say this, as much as we want them to validate us, I think this can be a great opportunity in our relationships and our own personal development to learn how to validate ourselves. I think there comes a time when we need to give ourselves the validation we're seeking, where we need to learn how to like internalize that and have like a self, an internal well of validation instead of always seeking it externally. When we seek external validation, I like to think of it as external validation as like the dessert or the cherry on top, something that's nice, but as internal validation being like, the meal, the meat and potatoes that like really fulfills you and sustains you. And, and this phase can really help you develop internal validation skills so that you're not so reliant on your spouse for validation. We can become like a little bit anxiously attached when we're always externally needing other people to validate us. It, we're never really satiated. So again, with these phases, there's like, there's, a lot of self-development. You're probably picking up on this that goes through this process. Okay. If they really love me, then they would phase. This one I see a lot. If they love me, they would ask me about my faith transition. It's probably how I saw it. If he loved me, he would understand how much this matters to me. If he loved me, he would respect my decisions. If he loved me, he wouldn't be freaked out by this. That's how I saw it. I see my clients say things like, if he loved me, he wouldn't want to try coffee. He wouldn't want to try alcohol. He wouldn't want to take off his garments. If you really love me, he wouldn't have this faith transition in the first place. This is how the, if, if they really love me, they would 
phase often sounds like. What I want to say about this phase is I actually think this phase isn't so much about love as it is about acknowledging loss and pains and that things are not how they're supposed to be. I think if we were to say like, he's supposed to ask me about my faith transition, he's supposed to understand why this matters to me. He's supposed to respect my decision. He's supposed to not be freaked out by this. He's supposed to not, not want to try alcohol. He's supposed to not drink coffee. I think that's really what's happening in this space is we have to confront our supposed to be's. That's not a comfortable confrontation. Letting go of supposed to be's is a skill I would highly recommend to anybody in any sort of relationship, but especially in a mixed faith marriage. Holding on to supposed to be's is a recipe for suffering because what you're ultimately doing is you're denying the reality of that person in front of you and you're denying the reality of the relationship in front of you by holding on to those supposed to be's that just aren't true anymore for like what you're experiencing. Now, I want to make a comment here because this is work I do with some clients is like sometimes there really are deal breakers that are non-negotiable, that are things you're just not willing to experience in your marriage or in your spouse. And I think that's really valuable to know about yourself and to communicate that and to be clear with yourself and to like respect that about yourself. And I think there's a lot of supposed to be's that aren't that we can actually learn to let go of and find peace with so we don't have so much suffering in our marriage. This is something I've had to do. I've had very few deal breakers, I find. My husband has very few, but we've had a lot of supposed to be's that we've needed to let go of a lot. And like I said, it's a skill, but it's... um. It's a valuable skill. Okay, I have two more and then I'll wrap up for you. One is um, maybe this will work and maybe it won't. So this is like a, this is when things start to like get a little bit better. So one day it's super hopeful and the next day somebody doubles down or says something unfortunate. It's like hot and cold. It's up, up and down. Usually you know that you've entered this phase because you start to have some ups after a whole bunch of downs. So this is, I knew we were in this phase because we started to be able to joke about like what was said in sacrament meeting that day. We started to be able to talk about what was said in sacrament meeting that day. Like we started to be able to actually talk about like things in a normal conversation instead of like the demilitarized zone. This phase is a really important time where you can do some really important work around your beliefs, around marriage and divorce. This is challenging work for some people. But a lot of people go into a mixed faith marriage thinking it's less than ideal marriage, that it's not a desirable type of marriage to have. So think about this, Richard. If you believe that a mixed faith marriage is a less than ideal marriage, and what you want more than anything in the world is a wonderful, strong, and healthy marriage, you have to prove yourself wrong to have what you want the most. So I think it's such important work to look at your beliefs around marriage and divorce and make sure you're not putting up your own roadblocks here. This is not easy work. 
Like what I'm going to say isn't easy stuff here. How we perceive marriage and divorce can really make our marriage easier or harder. We put marriage on a pedestal in our culture, our LDS culture especially, and that can really up the pressure and the stakes in a situation like this. Where, you know, the married temple marriage romantic relationship is the most important thing in our life. And now when this happens, the pressure can be really a lot. And when we're under that type of pressure, we're not thinking clearly. We're not able to access our prefrontal cortex. We're not able to come up with solutions. We're not, we're just stressed. We're just in fight and flight and freeze or emotional flooding or all of this stuff is going on. So a lot of the work I like to do is to just notch down marriage. Like I I am pro-marriage. Like this is the work I do. But I think we need to notch down like the pedestal marriage and bring it back into reality so we can release some of the pressure, so we can access some of our own intuition, our own brilliance. If I was a member, I would say so I could access the promptings of the spirit, like so that I'm just not always flooded in panic and stress and cortisol and all of that. So there's interesting belief work, thought work is what I call it around like, what are your beliefs around a mixed faith marriage? What are your beliefs around a romantic relationship? What are your beliefs around divorce? For some people, it's really powerful to say that divorce isn't an option. It's a really powerful thing. It creates commitment for them. It creates dedication. For some people, that creates feeling stuck and like they're not actually exercising a choice. So I think it's worth looking at. And if you say, you know, looking at beliefs around divorce, I think is helpful because if you feel like you don't have a choice, then you can't choose to stay because it's, it's like a watered down choice because the other choice is not a real choice. But if you can look at these belief systems and, and really question them so that you can choose to stay because you want to stay, because you choose this person in this relationship. That's a powerful place to be. And sometimes that requires looking at divorce closely. Now, I want to honor our time, Richard. I know we like started a little bit late. I'm good. Okay. He yeah, gave me the good this one. This is great stuff. Okay. Don't stop. And this is the last phase. So we're really tight. We're really close here. The, the last phase is maybe this can be amazing. And maybe this can be amazing phase. So like, think about acceptance. The hallmarks of this phase are acceptance, non-judgment, and influence. Now, I think these three things are highly interconnected. They're also skills anyone can develop. And I would argue these are some of the most beautiful gifts you can offer your partner in a relationship is being like highly masterful at these skills. They do take practice. <laughs> we step in, we step out. Perfection is not the goal here. It's just our engagement in developing these skills that I think is valuable. Acceptance does not mean approval or agreement. I just want, I'm going to say that again. Acceptance does not mean approval or agreement. Acceptance is acknowledging the reality of the current situation, not ignoring it, not resisting it, not avoiding it, but accepting the current reality of the situation. This is like the opposite of the supposed choose. Accepting they're an adult who can make their own decision regarding their faith, accepting that I don't want to be dictating their decisions for them because I love them. 
And I want them to make their own decisions. Like, this is what acceptance looks like for me. Like, this is how it looked like for me. Um, accepting them as they are. Because one of the most painful messages I can receive is that I'm not acceptable as who I am and that I need to be somebody different to be acceptable to my spouse. And that's why I think it's one of the most beautiful gifts we can give. Judgment, like there's sort of this trifecta here. Acceptance, judgment, and influence. Judgment is, in my opinion, this is my definition, is disapproval mixed with disdain. And it can look like a number of things. How can you believe that? How can you support that? How can you leave that? How can you teach that? How can you do that? So this can be anything. Like, how can you support an organization that whatever you want to insert about the church? Or how can you, you know, how can you pay your tithing? How could you leave this church? How could you teach this to our children? Like, this is what judgment often sounds like. These are some things I've heard from my clients and in my own relationship that I would say are hallmarks of judgment. I wouldn't have married you if I knew this was going to happen. You can't be a good person if you don't believe in God. You're blindly obedient. You're brainwashed. Like these are some of the, the ugly ways judgment can present itself. Yeah, you, you see this is not pretty stuff. When we feel judged, we put up walls fast. Like we're packing sandbags so fast. Those walls are going up so fast because we don't feel trust. We don't feel safe. We don't feel interested in sharing with somebody who's judging us. When we're feeling judged, we're not connecting, but we're protecting. And connection is often exactly what we're looking for. The reason I talk about these two things is because they're part and parcel to influence. If you're familiar with John Gottman's work, he's a marriage researcher out of University of Washington. He has a lot of books and a lot of um, great resources. He talks about influence as one of the necessary like skills, things necessary to avoid divorce, to have a healthy relationship. This is something I see mixed faith marriages struggle with a lot. When they're able to master influence, I know they've really turned the page. Influence flows between a couple like a figure eight. Both are open and willing to learn from the other person, to hear from them, to share opinions. Like it just flows. Like somebody can offer something and you take it to heart. They, they, you say something, they really listen to it. This is what influence means. And influence is really necessary for a healthy, strong relationship. But influence doesn't flow when there's judgment, period. It just doesn't. When there's no acceptance and when there's judgment, there's no influence. We're in that protective mode. Walls are up. Influence can't flow. A lot of people want to be able to influence their spouse. They want to be influenceable by their spouse. And the best way to do that is not give them reasons to put up their walls, not give them reasons to need to protect themselves, to like practice acceptance, to to work on decreasing judgment so that that influence can flow. So here's how it looks in my relationship. This is a challenging area for me, is to learn how to accept him even, you know, we have different political viewpoints. We have different religious viewpoints. We have different parenting viewpoints. We have different money viewpoints. We have different home decorating 
few points. Like we, we have a hard time choosing furniture together, right? So like, it's really a skill set to develop and to learn how to let this, like to find acceptance, to let go of judgment so influence can flow. This is something I ask myself on a regular basis. Like, how can I accept who he is today? What's stopping me from accepting who he is today? When I feel judged or the walls going up, it's really important for me to talk about it. Hey, I'm feeling like I want to retreat and protect myself. Can we talk about what just happened? This is not easy work. You have to know yourself well enough to even recognize those walls are going up. And then you have to be able to be brave enough to communicate that with your spouse. So many things can stop any of these things from happening at various points along the way. These are not like, these are like 2.0 skills that I'm talking about here. But they're so important in this phase of a mixed faith marriage when we want influence to be flowing between the partners. I consider my marriage a complete work in progress. Like WIP is like what I would describe. I always just see that when I was a litigator. Anyway, I did all sorts of like supply chain and all sorts of like business automotive litigation. So I see a big WIP when I look at my marriage. Um, and I like to consider a mixed faith marriage isn't something I fix or I resolve. It's something I manage. Like I manage the differences because they're always going to exist. So my value system is that differences like this, for me personally, this is me personally speaking, are not in a reason to end a marriage or to end a life we've built together. They're an opportunity. They're an opportunity to like to develop the skills and to learn how to reach out and connect and influence each other and enjoy each other and raise kids together and choose furniture together or whatever it may be, like in a way that works for both of us. I'm not gonna joke, Richard. This is not easy. I, I had one client say, like, a mixed faith marriage is not for everyone. She's right, it's not. But it's for me, and it's for a lot of the clients I work with. And I really do believe it's, um, it's possible. It just takes a little bit more skills. It's different skill set than you use in a same faith march. Okay, that's my story. Brooke, this, was, this is a terrific podcast, and listeners, when... You know, someone comes in the podcast, I don't know much about them. We just do so many. <laughs> um, I don't sort of screen them or know what they're going to say. I just say a prayer that this will be helpful. And um, this is incredibly helpful, Brooke. Um, you are <clears throat> one of the very best guests we've ever had on the podcast in this space. And I'm just so deeply moved. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that feel the same way. Here's some of the things. Listeners, I write down, as you know, I kind of write things down and they may be things that you also wrote down, but, um, and I do this, I hope it doesn't distract from what Brooke just said. It just hopefully compliments. I liked you shared some of the difficult experiences you've had because when we know better, we do better. And you did that with respect and grace. And I think we can be mature enough. This is me talking to other Latter-day Saints who are kind of, you know, in the church, I'm in the church and is I think we can be true enough about our faith to look inward and say, I'm interested in how we can do better. I want to do better. And so this 
experience with a stake present, you, Brooke, need to figure this out. <laughs> um, the patriarchy and kind of in that is, is you handled that well, but it was, you know, I think in totality, you can recognize it's part of the crack. Now, then I got pretty emotional when you released from your institute class because I just thought about all the years you've been taught seminary and institute. I was an in seminary, early morning seminary teacher for eight weeks in Wichita, Kansas, substituting for early morning seminary. And I just couldn't believe the time required to be an early morning seminary teacher and um, the time to find lessons to get up and be present for those kids. So um, you have been on this road for a long time and have helped a lot of kids and then be to be released. I think it, the emotional wounding of that may have been more than just that class, but sort of a lifetime of service in the space that was dismissed. And I'm not a therapist, but there's a deep wounding in that, that you weren't trusted to do the right thing. And um, I'm just so sorry about that. My younger self would have dismissed that or said, Brooke, you're overthinking that or you're too sensitive. My older self would just sit with you in the pain of that. Um, and so I thought, you know, you did a good job in, of just sharing that. I, I, the next word I wrote down was just maturity, that um, there's so much, you know, the people I've talked to that have left the church, there's a, you know, there's pain there and there's often a pretty logical conclusion on why they leave and their natural reaction may want to others to find what they've found and to follow their path. But sometimes let's validate our own story if other people follow our story. But the maturity you have to let people write their own stories is really very thoughtful and very mature. And I think gospel-based, principle-based. The next thing I wrote down is, um, I won't be able to say this as well as you did, is just, you know, we're sometimes so busy in the church with callings and um, all the work we do is we don't develop what I wrote down. I think you said here, we're not able to communicate our emotions and we don't develop um, emotional processing tools. And I've noticed that they may be true in all marriages, religious or not, or all faith. So it's not necessarily direct criticism of our faith that I love, but I think it's the reality of marriages sometimes is um, we don't develop the tools that then couples in mixed faith orientation marriages, mixed faith, that's mixed. You're not, now I don't want to get orientation mixed in there. We're not talking about a mixed orientation marriage is where one or both are not straight. A mixed faith marriage is to, you know, as people have different beliefs about our church. But I love just, you know, developing emotional processing tools. And I wish we, you know, I wish I'd known more about that space. I've got 12 of them here, listeners. I'm going to go really fast. Um, I'm only on number four. I think of Apollo 13, and I bring that up frequently in the podcast, Gene Kratz, when everything's going south on Apollo 13, and everybody around him is talking about gloom and doom. And at least the way the movie depicts it, he stands up and he says, excuse me, this is going to be our finest hour. And I think this is one of the finest hour of your marriage is this journey you've been on. And it's a beautiful love story and it's painful and you're honest about that. But what you've role modeled in your marriage is that those principles scale to all of us. And it's, I don't want to minimize the pain or saying, but then I wrote down mixed faith marriage is not a bad thing. And so maybe Gene Kratz would say, this is a good thing. 
and Apollo 13 isn't crashing and it, and the silver lining here is everybody's saved. This is actually a good thing. Um, and it's, it's, you know, and so I love that. I wrote down something you didn't say, but I thought about it is maybe it's good that we all prepare mentally for um, the inevitability that we could be in a mixed faith marriage or that we could have kids that transition out of the church. And we don't necessarily, if you're not in a mixed faith marriage, I'm not saying that that's something you should hope for, or, but it might be something you develop the tools that you're talking about, even in a non-mixed faith marriage. Because I think they scale to other situations of raising kids, or so the things you, the principles you share, kind of scale into all relationships. So that's a thought I've never had before. Um, then you said something: move away from external validation to internal validation, and that's powerful. And I, in Latter Day Saint culture, I think growing up we get a fair amount of external validation with the milestones we hit, and that's good and a good thing, but I think of, you know, I think it's good and maybe it's just to turn to this internal validation that I think you more talk about is more sustainable. Um, then you said something, letting go of the so supposed to be's that was powerful on number eight. Um, you know, you sort of had this honest discussion about divorce, I think, and you, then you have this choice to stay and how that's more empowering perhaps to have these conversations. And sometimes that can be helpful with someone who's considering leaving the church. I'm not saying this should be your story, but sometimes if you're a friend or a local leader or open, opening that door and say, if, you're, if your best path forward is to leave the church, I will walk with you. Now that, I wouldn't invite you to do that in a manipulative way, but I think it just helps them understand that you can preserve the relationship. And they may choose to stay just because they feel like they're staying um, not out of duty or not out of manipulation, but because they really want to stay. Number nine is, um, I've already kind of said that, is the principles you scale, principles you share scale to other relationship situations. Um, then I thought of Elder Cook's quote that's still up on my phone. Um, we can be an oasis of unity and to celebrate diversity. Unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we fought, fought, foster an atmosphere of inclusion, and respect for diversity. And that's maybe what you've been able to do in your marriage is you're unified in a lots of areas. I assume you both deeply care about your kids. And it seems like all the work you've done education-wise and is a lot of that's out of love for your kids and wanting to give them opportunities. So I like that. Um, and you said some things about when we feel judged, we put up walls. And then you said influence doesn't follow flow where there is judgment. That's just really, really powerful, Brooke. And I thought of Steve Book's The Law of Love, this non-transactional love that's the in a gospel context, he believes it's the highest law. It's the law Jesus taught in the New Testament. Elder Danes, I think, in his general conference talk, you know, he didn't use that vocabulary, but I think he taught the same principles. So I think that's just a powerful enabling feeling, and it's not easy not to. It's it's not easy to do that, but in my experience, we do better. Um, then I thought of your kids and. Um, this is something you didn't say, but 
you know, you've got kids and you're in, you know, I think your youngest is attending with your husband and this is for others in mixed faith marriages. I wonder if you came on the podcast with your husband in 20 years and, and you would say, you know, what we I get tender heart here. I don't know if this is true or not. What we role modeled in our own marriage um, has helped our kids be better people and have better relationships and better marriages and be better parents. And maybe some of the paydays of the hard work you've done, you and your husband is, is, you know, translates to your kids to some extent. And I don't know how much they're aware of the work you've done, but as they age up, they'll listen to these kind of podcasts. They'll become aware of this. And I think they'll be really, I think they are, and will be really proud of you. And I think it translates into their lives. And all of us need the principles you're teaching. And I think, so I think your kids are better off for the journey you've both been on. Now that's not saying if you were never in a mixed faith marriages, your kids wouldn't have good outcomes. I'm just saying it's a, it's a beautiful part of your marriage that I think the things that you're able to do in your marriage translate to your kids and give them better skills. So those, that's my list of stuff. And I usually like to send it back to Brooke to, and the things we'll put in the show notes listeners. And I want Brooke to cook, to share anything else that comes to her mind or anything else I said that didn't quite feel right with her is we're going to put two Facebook groups in the, in the show notes and let's have Brooke mention those when she comes back on Brooke's podcast, Brooke's website, Brooke's email. And uh, Brooke, your more thoughts you'd like to share. So thank you for saying that. Um, I totally agree with you on the child, like the child thing that I think that when we can model this for our children, we teach them anything from critical thinking to empathy, to inclusion, to like, it just goes on and on and on and on. I, I believe you. I don't see how this couldn't help them, how this couldn't benefit them. Let me tell you, I have won the lottery with my kids. They are mm. amazing. Mm. Lottery. That's the only way I can possibly describe how amazing they are. Let me tell you, what I want to leave is resources. People are always like, we need help. What are some resources mm. available to people in a Mormon mixed faith marriage? That's what I'm going to share with you. There's two Facebook groups that are pretty active. You've probably heard of Marriage on a Tightrope by Ellen and Katie Mount. I moderate that group with a whole team of their amazing moderators. I am not one of the amazing moderators. There are some women on there who just do amazing work. Um, it's a great, very active space. The Mormon Mixed Faith Marriage Facebook group is another place that's that's a more it's not such an active group but it's it's for people who aren't so comfortable in such a public group so if you're a more private person you're just wading into this that's probably a good group to start I post in that group a lot so that I moderate that group and I post in there a lot so if you just want to be quiet sidelines peek at what's going on there that's a great place to go if you want a social group it's got a lot of stuff going on Marriage on a Tightrope is a great group for that. Um, I have a podcast, the Mormon Mixed Faith Marriage Podcast, where I talk about this stuff all the time. And that is another great free resource to go to if you really need some help working through some challenges in your mixed faith marriage. That's what I have to say, Richard. Thanks for letting me come and talk with you. Um, Brooke, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks. You know, one of the things when I meet somebody who's no longer participating in the church, my current self just wants to thank them for all the good they've done. Um, and 
you know, and I, one of the things I wrote in my book, I wrote, um, um, I'll read this paragraph. I also refrain from saying my friends who have left the church, you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. Yes, I invite pe- people who have left the church not to pull others in the direction, but I also understand that leaving a religion one has given years of time, service, and financial contribution is different than changing sports teams, cable companies, or a gym membership. It's a change at a deeper level. I tried to show grace by willing to listen and support their journey and hope they show grace by supporting me to stay a member of the church. So this is a space where we can, you know, use principles that Jesus taught to reduce the divisiveness. And so, you know, my current self would just thank you for all that you've done. I wouldn't say, well, Brooke, the light's gone out of your eyes. I'm sorry to bring these up or you know, you, whatever you did, you did something wrong along the way. I just trust you that, you know, and you're writing your own story and it's not my job to judge your story. Just like you've invited us. My job is to walk with you and, and recognize all the good that you've done in our community and as a litigator and recognize your, um, education, academic accomplishments and all you've given and your willingness to shift gears and become a life coach and use your own lived experience plus the things you've learned as a life coach to reduce divisiveness and bring people together. And it's very needed in our space. And so um, thank you, Brooke Booth, for being on the podcast. Thanks, Richard. It's nice to meet you. And listeners, check out the show notes for all the things we've um, listed. And thank you for joining us. And we hope this podcast is helpful to you. Mm -hmm.